listening to the a to e podcast i am your humble and gracious host me once again coming to you from the confines of my bedroom um today i'm joined by mohammed el naim who is a phd researcher at cambridge i believe that's right yeah uh, of sudanese descent uh you might have already heard him on the black as in revolution youtube channel uh, in the opening talk about political blackness uh i thought fort mohammed was a very eloquent speaker and someone that had a really really um good handle on the topic so i wanted to have him on my platform to speak on the same issue so without further ado i'll let Mohammed introduce himself and uh talk a bit about what he sees political blackness as yeah so thank you so much for having me on on your show i'm really happy to be here uh when it comes to the question of political blackness the way the conversation is usually had i think the definition is that there was a brief moment i think in the post-war period in britain and post-war and rush generation, when uh, people of South Asian descent and people of uh, African descent, whether they're being Afro-Caribbean or from West Africa, um, all united under a common um, definition of blackness uh, so that they could uh, fight against what they saw as you know, the white supremacist and capitalist system that they were in. So it was always a left-wing movement. And the emphasis on the word it being political meant that it was an identity that was not rooted in an appeal to uh, maybe phenotype or genetics, but more in an appeal to the common understanding that they all felt that they were seen as Black and so that they should organize uh, alongside each other under the term that they were Black. Um, and But whereas where I, what, what I usually like to say is that I don't believe that there is any form of Blackness that is not political. Um, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit more. Great. Thanks for that. Um, that was really, really comprehensive. Um, I guess I'll go into my sort of knowledge on the, on the topic. Um, I didn't really have much knowledge growing up. Um, the idea of political blackness was something I was completely ignorant to until maybe about um, 2015. Uh, or maybe a bit earlier, 2013, 14. I came across it indirectly through my university degree. Um, I studied literature at university and a lot of my modules that I picked were based around post-colonial um, moments and uh, black resistance and modernity as well. Uh, so in my first year, there was this text called The Lonely Londoners, which is a novel by um, Samuel Selvin, who is an Indo-Trinidadian writer. I believe he was also a Canadian national at one point too. And, you know, it was a great book. It's about afro west indians and them settling in 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 london after in in a post windrush um era um it describes the first time the this describes them meetings with nigerians describes their just general sort of um integration into british society or, or the the failure to integrate because of uh, english society's rejection of them as black people um and you know it was a great book i thought it was really cool um I, it felt really impactful to me um and then i kind of came across what samuel seven looked like and obviously yeah, this is an, an asian man of long hair and i'm thinking how is how and why is he writing about black people um so that was kind of the ignorance that i had 
at the time and in my in my essay that i wrote about the story um one of my closing statements was that as as, as great as this you know story is and how impactful it is and how it authentically represents the situation of the windrush generation at the same time the fact that it's written by an indian person you know kind of takes away from the impactfulness um and i when i when i got the essay back um that was like heavily underlined my course leader had highlighted that part of my essay and just basically written that he wrote a note that i need to do more research um at the time i didn't bother because in my head it was very plain and simple like blackness only existed as this very obvious racial certainty you know when you look at someone you can see that if they're black or not and i was kind of like yeah i was kind of i don't need to do any more research because he's not a black man it's very clear upon his appearance he's not a black man so so yeah for me it was very it was kind of confusing and again because no one had introduced the idea of political blackness in a formal manner in terms of oh this is what it is it was just always this thing that was kind of like i was seeing people of south asian descent placed next to black people or people that i would consider black in terms of race and culture um and not really understand why the term black was used as a blanket then again in my third year in another post-colonial module um we were studying writers from different ex-british colonies and we got to the um you know we went went through we kind of skipped africa we were yeah there were um I had a lot of issues with that um, with that module. We did Ireland, we did India, we very much skipped over Africa. It was it, it, yeah, I had some issues with that course. Um, but when we got to the we got to and the final part of the module was Black Britain, and there were three poets um, that we studied for this Black British part of the module, and one of them was Nigerian of Nigerian descent, and the other two were of South Asian descent. So on the day of the seminar i come and i'm like why are we only doing one black poet in um in a black british part of the module and once again my my course leader didn't explain the, this idea of political blackness or didn't explain that he was using the term black british in a political sense that he just it was a fact it was one it was one of a south asian guy in the in the class and so because because i remember sitting there and i said that and then the two or three black girls that were also in my seminar group just agreed with me. And then there was one South Asian person in the group. And then the, the course leader himself was also South Asian. And then again, it was kind of this very loose thing of where, well, Asians have also sort of kind of fought to be, fought, fought to take this label of black. Um, there was no real breaking down of the idea of political blackness. Again, it was very, this, this kind of very loose explanation of just like, we can also call Asians black without giving any kind of framework of why um that was the case so it just it just kind of always left me like perplexed whenever this kind of thing would come up um especially because when i look back on my dealings of the Asia, with the asian community personally so i remember i've lived in the same area since i was well since i was born i've lived in the same area uh relative, yeah give or take one or two years and there there are you know corner shop owners of south asian descent that i've that have seen my face that known me for my entire 20 26 26 27 years of a um of life and every time i walk into that the corner shop it's the same reaction as if i'm gonna steal something as if i'm gonna take something um another time in when i was at sixth form um in my english class i was quote unquote the best student um and our teachers like to do this sort of competition thing i guess um 
and there was and I guess the next best student in the class was this South Asian guy um, and during our parents evening competition sorry and during our parents evening conference um, for some reason my name got brought up in his conference during his conference um, I guess I guess I teach because our teachers did this sort of like competition thing of like who's the best which is problematic but it is what it is and essentially his 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 grandmother said why is that Carla doing better than you you should be doing better than him so so I guess from those sort of personal situations um, and, again, and again it's kind of unfair to project onto an entire community based on the acts of a few but just that's just kind of what happened so I'm like Asian people don't really seem to like black people all that much um, even though I'd had several South Asian friends across my life um, people from India, people from Pakistan um, but like in in a, in, a, in a general cultural sense it seemed that way based on the interactions of people that I didn't know personally um, so I was like this idea of a catch-all blackness um, didn't make sense to me uh, obviously again because I hadn't had it hadn't had it explained to the same degree that you've explained it and then on top of that to sort of like round it off during my course as well we looked at colonial education during the time we were studying Frankenstein um, because one of the concepts is that Frankenstein's monster is also representative of um, uh, non-white sort of indigenous people in in this noble savage um we actually had yeah, school printings from the colonial period and you know it broke down humanity into like four subsections so you had savages who were like you know um african negroes um noble savages who would have been native americans um the aborigines and melanesians in uh, australasia uh, then you had semi-civilized, who was um, South Asians and East Asians, and then you had semi-civilized, which was Caucasian people. So, I kind of took from that that what must have happened is that these ideas must have been internalized by everybody, and therefore put um, you know the Black African at the bottom of the totem pole, and therefore it didn't really make sense to be lumped together with these people, considering that they too have internalized these ideas of racial hierarchy and that races these races racial categories are very distinct and very um yeah just they have very very obvious boundaries um my my thoughts are different now but that at the time that's kind of how i was processing the information i was getting um so yeah i guess i'll let you respond to that no i think you've talked about some of the you know really really important complexities of this conversation um that uh i guess some of the complexities that we didn't, I didn't get to touch on blackness in the revolution uh, talk. Um, what I was trying to push back against was the idea that we have to have more insular conceptions of blackness during this contemporary moment. But talking from a more personal perspective, um, and, and this, you know, to, to talk about how race is so contextual, blackness is so contextual. Um, when I was growing up in England, uh, early on in my life. So I lived here until I was 10 and then I moved around to the Middle East, right? Um, you know, I was racialized as black. Uh, and when I went to the Middle East, I was racialized as black, but not by white people, by Arab people. And one of the common things that would happen if you get into an argument with someone in the Middle East, uh, because there's also a history of an Arab slave trade, is that they'll call you abd, which means a slave, right? Um, and, you know, this was my conception of who I was as someone who is racialized as black, 
right? And and one of the first impulsive responses to that is to become proud of your blackness, which is which I was. Now, Sudan might also paint some of my own perspectives on 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 how I look at this because when you go back to Sudan, all of a sudden I'm in, I've entered into a new racial hierarchy, right? Where I'm seeing people who are phenotypically the same and who would also be racialized as black, who would who are the butt of usually the jokes um, on Arab TV, uh, especially every Ramadan um, about you know lazy uh, African uh, Arab people who don't want to do something and uh, wear their turban differently, um, and 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 some of these jokes even turn into blackface, and you can see these uh, these TV shows in. Um, North Africa, in the Middle East, etc. And so that's my understanding of who I am, black and proud. But when I go to Sudan, the context changes almost immediately, right? And the racial hierarchies are very different. I've entered now into Sudan into the privileged set, where there are people who are also phenotypically like me, um, who would be racialized as black, looking down at people who were darker, right? especially people from South Sudan and from Darfur, and seeing themselves as sort of um, superior to them, right? Uh, when they get angry at those people, they are racialized them as black and racialize themselves as Arab, right? And one of the things is, is that in other countries, the, bar- the marker of difference between what is not black and what is black is a skin color, right? In Sudan, it's very strange because you have black people who, for cultural reasons, but also for political reasons, because there was a political Arabness that took over the Sudanese identity in the post-colonial period. There was a political Arabness that took over, um, see themselves as Arab, right? And what that's done for the unity of the country has been absolutely disastrous, right? And there's one joke that Sudanese people like to tell. It's that a northern Sudanese person was in the West and a southern Sudanese person was in the West. And the northern Sudanese person and the southern Sudanese person got into an argument together. And the northern Sudanese person screamed. uh, They were screaming at each other. And the northern Sudanese person, in a fit of anger, screamed, you slave, to the southern Sudanese person. And then the southern Sudanese person laughed uh, in his face. He said, listen, man, we're in the U.S., um, we're all n words here, you know, um, and the the main the main sort of like point of that joke is also again the point of the fiction of 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 these you know these hierarchies and you know on, from one perspective you could say okay maybe what's what's going on there is colorism and there's an endless hierarchy that starts off with lighter shade to the darker shade, but one of the things that was the biggest obstacle I think in Sudan was that the way I would see it personally is that there's a people calling themselves Arab, my people, whom had they understood their identity in a way that could unite with the other people across the country, as the Southern Sudanese struggle had been trying so hard to do with the Northern Sudanese people, the SPLM and the Jongare, was to tell them that you are African, you know, you, and, and there was an even a Pan-Africanism stuff. And then they even had to make a compromise. Okay, let's, let's follow a Sudanism kind of, right? Because this idea of, uh, of Arab-African is, is causing problems of national unity. And, and we know where that went because that led the fragmentation of 
of our people into different categories, which had their history and which were, you know, aggravated uh, by the colonial regime, right? The way people understood themselves as I'm this, I'm that, based on the census kind of approach of personhood, which was introduced, you know, by, by, by colonialism. It had, you know, disastrous consequences and led to the disunity of the country. What happened recently was in Sudan, a revolution happened, which I had the great benefit of joining, and I returned back to Sudan. Um, and in this revolution, uh, one of the things that the youth were doing was there was a renunciation of Arabness, and there was an understanding of us being Africans. Mm-hmm. And you'd go around everywhere in the city that was in front of the military headquarters. And one of the things is, is that the people manning the barricades uh, were, they call themselves Rastas. So they're, they they have Rasta hair, they, they, they would take up that culture in a specific Sudanese version of it. So not in the Christian idioms of it, but a specific Sudanese version of it. And there was reggae. Reggae was the sort of the genre of, of the revolution. And there was even a campaign of Sudan leaving the Arab Union. And there was a huge massacre uh, you know, in third of June last year in 2019, and I, you know, a lot of us had to leave. I, I, I took the the decision with a lot of um, with a lot of other activists uh, to go to Kenya, and we went to Kenya and we linked up with South Sudanese activists, and we linked up with um, with the activists from Darfur, and we did a Pan African Declaration, which is sort of a symbolic leaving of Sudan from the Arab Union, right? And the reason why this was important is there's no, this is not a denial of the importance of Arab culture on the tapestry of Sudan, right? This is not a way to us to say that there's no way in which the Africanness that we have and the Arabness can be reconciled. But it is to say that Arabness and Arab nationalism within the context of Sudan, as opposed to maybe Algeria or, or these other countries where it had a progressive role or Palestine, had a, had a disastrous role. And when we approached, thankfully, and to their great merit, when we approached people from Darfur and South Sudan, people from, from those movements, it was a multi-generational declaration, you know. There was sort of a, 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 a sense of relief, you know. Finally, this, this new generation of Sudanese people are identifying as Black, not as Arab, right? And... That's why it's like this context of what is black and what is not is everything you're saying is absolutely true in terms of the stadial theory, in terms of the racial hierarchies that put black people at the bottom. What you're absolutely saying is an absolute fact that there is no natural bond of solidarity between people of different colors um, and that um, in most circumstances, I as a person who's black, you know, when I moved to Malaysia for a few years, I had people of South Indian descent and Malay people not only put a knife to my neck, but put a gun to my head and they were screaming the word Negro while they were doing it, you know? Uh, so I've been, I've been, I've, I've faced life threatening um, circumstances uh, three times in my life. Once when I was stopped by a police officer in the United States and uh, I don't like, thankfully there was no gun or anything, but you know, I was terrified because he was accusing me of smoking weed when I hadn't been. Um, and I actually don't smoke weed. Um, and then uh, the second time was with an Indian gangster, in Tamil gangster in, um, in Malaysia. And then the third time was with a Malay uh, gangster. Uh, well, actually a Malay guy who called himself an immigration officer. 
Now, these are real, real experiences, right? And I, and it, this was in a context where I was racialized as black and something that I think a lot of people in Nigeria may have, uh, may have an understanding of. Uh, Nigerian people who go to India are often racialized. In China, we heard recent stories of uh, people being, you know, the absurdity of black people being accused of having COVID-19 um, in the country that where COVID-19 actually came from. You know, um, I mean, that, there is an absolute reality of anti-black racism being vicious and deadly. And I have firsthand experience of that. But my story itself, right, just to make it more personal, and less theoretical than like the one that we had um, before talking about Walter Rodney and all of these different experiences, historical experiences. But putting that to the side and just speaking personally, I should tell you the, the complexity of, of my own blackness. Right. In some circumstances, my own blackness has almost put me in a life threatening situation. And in other circumstances, uh, my blackness disappeared into an Arabness that put me at the top of a hierarchy that was, you know, of course, entrenched by the British, but existed even before the British came. And so what does that mean about the concept of blackness itself? Right. For me, we could have had the person in. India, uh, I mean, in Malaysia, the Tamil person, see me and him as black, as maybe in some imaginary world where we both lived in Britain in post-World War period, maybe they wouldn't have seen themselves as superior to me in the first place, you know? And that's the whole point of, 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 black, of, 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 of the political blackness. Political blackness, as it's originated, as it's emerged, and we can talk about some of these historical examples, whether they're in South Africa or in Guyana or even here in Britain, as it's emerged, it's actually been emerged by a minority. You know, so that's the whole, that's the whole fallacy of, of, of people saying this is black British history, all of sudden Zayn Malik and stuff. The, the point is, is during the periods in which a lot of people were calling themselves politically black, those were only the politically active people, you know. Um, in fact, you know, the reality is, is people like Sivanandan or, 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 or people like Moodley in South Africa, etc., they probably had to not only contest and call themselves black in the face of skepticism from many African people, but probably in the face of skepticism from their own families, right? So th this is a calculated attempt to not ignore difference, but to break down the barriers in between different human beings in the face of what their common goal and enemy should be, right? But it's not supposed to be about glossing over difference. And so I guess my specific identity as someone who is of maybe Afro-Arab, if they want to call it that, whatever, of my blackness being contingent historically, geographically, kind of already makes me skeptical of any understanding of, uh, a genetic understanding of what it means to be black, because my experiences tell me otherwise. Thanks a lot for sharing that. Um, I think a lot of people are going to take a lot from that. I, just, I certainly did. Um, and I guess it kind of highlights several different things that we can kind of chop into. Um, I, I agree with you in your opening statement that there is definitely a lot more insular ideas around blackness and black identities that are kind of being propped up in this current moment. Um, I also think that you also kind of highlighted how blackness is um i guess it's kind of dubious thing in the sense that there are those of us in the black community whose identity shifts and changes depending on geographic location uh, whether it's because we're biracial or we're from a particular ethnic group um, or speak a certain language there are you know there are ways in which 
it becomes this thing that is very shiftable, changeable. Um, it kind of highlights how race within itself is kind of this, um, you know, I guess a fallacy in a wider sense. It's not this real cemented genetic thing. It's more about hierarchy and um, uh, power and resources, the fact that people are racialized. Um, but again, because of the reality of the system, it then becomes this real thing based on people's treatment and based on the fact that people buy into this identity. Um, I guess is even because within the context of a capitalist structure, identity itself becomes monetizable. It becomes, it becomes a resource within itself, especially for those who do not have um, capital, as in physical capital, whether it's money, land, etc., identity becomes this form of this resource this thing that you have to protect to gatekeep you have to um you know you have to preserve in order to feel as if you're not being completely ground down by the wider society um i think especially in, in the context where we look around the world and the sort of like informal or formal state-led apartheids have kind of you know died down we're not living in jim crow we're not living in apartheid south africa um so I guess that also allows for the black communities in the diaspora to feel more comfortable, to feel as if there is a level of accomplishment, even though the system that oppresses them is still much in full flow, still much in full existence. Um, in terms of the way these insular ideas are manifesting, I think a great example is probably like the, the ADOS community uh, or the ADOS group, I guess, because um, it's both like a political group and people actually also identify as ADOS. They'll use terms like ADOS or foundational black to describe themselves. And I guess essentially that's like a, a perfect example of people saying a shared blackness is not desirable. Um, if you're going to call yourself black, there has to be a very specific specificity to it. There has to be a specific cultural reference, a specific legacy lineage um, and a specific politics. Um, surrounding i guess um in particular reparations for african-americans um obviously because i live over in in england in this very cold cold country um i haven't met anyone that would categorize themselves as ados or foundational black in in person um i hope to travel to america at some point in the future but um i haven't met anyone in person but i've had um dealings online with people that will call themselves ados or say they represent ados in some way shape or form um, and I find myself pushing against their politics, not necessarily because of the things that are about um, uh, proving African-American distinction or suggesting African-Americans have had a very um, specific experience and therefore require like very specific um, aid or reparations or that kind of thing. I don't necessarily disagree with that. But what I do disagree with is the ways in which I hear people that claim to um, represent this group or use this as an identity, um, vilify other black groups. Um, essentially, there are, you know, the, the, if speaking very generally, there is this idea that a West Indian is this stuck-up, um, uh, sort of like mercantile individual, uh, and then this idea that the uh, like a continental African is, is, is a race traitor, essentially. Um, and, you know, they'll go as far as to talk about our... Um, I've heard people that would call themselves ADOS ask um, first generation uh, Africans um, in the diaspora would say things like, oh, do you know if your ancestors sold slaves? And um, like very sort of like anti antagonistic um, things in order to sort of like create this very blatant and quite violent distinction. Um, it it's kind of reminds me a lot of like 
far right rhetoric um in the ideas of like the, the stealing of opportunities that that kind of rhetoric of this particular group is stealing opportunities from you they're, tr- they're trying to replace you it's like you, we you kind of hear very 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 similar things from you know from far right groups both in america and, and in the uk um there's also been some um accusation that the uh, actual ados group is somehow funded or connected to white supremacists um I haven't done super duper detailed research into that, so I won't go any further, but that is like something that's been said. So, so yeah, I do find myself um, pushing against that ideology uh, because I think the main thing for me that I hope to do through this podcast, and it's just in my life in general, is to always highlight the shared black history that black groups have. Like as, as much as we have this, you know, very, uh, we have different experiences, different cultures, uh, different languages, so much variety within ourselves. A lot of our history is a very, you know, through both um, political movements, um, mem- um, like leaders, um, even music, like a lot of our experiences are shared in that way. And I think these things are often um, neglected. You know, uh, when you look at people like uh, Kwame Tor, when you look at people like Kwame Nkrumah, when you look at people like Biggie Smalls, DJ Cool Herc, when you look at Malcolm X, like th- there are so many different ways in which we connect and we maybe don't see it because we very unfortunately don't have access to a lot of these stories and these histories. And it's kind of interesting the ways in which blackness is um, is yielded. And when it's and when it's also um, um, uh, what's the word when it's also kept away from certain people. So, for example, I basically I've heard people that you know call themselves ADOS or claim to represent ADOS in some way, shape, or form to say essentially to new black migrants that when it comes to like police brutality cases in America, they shouldn't use examples that involve black Americans. They should only be talking about or interested in. Um, incidents that involved a black migrant um so something like the botham gene case um i've seen people i've seen them say that you know when a a police officer stops a black migrant they're stopping that person because they believe them to be an african-american um you had people like Tariq Nasheed talking about what happened to um toyin who was a blm activist uh, who was murdered and essentially saying, well, you know, she's Nigerian and what happened to her has nothing to do with the black American community. It, so essentially, like, there isn't a willingness to share blackness if there isn't a willingness for black migrants to kind of admit to a privilege or to step down, step away from certain opportunities based on the fact that they're not black American because they feel black Americans are the only ones that have fought to get these particular rights in america um so and it's interesting because there's that but then so not too long ago adele was pictured in a in jamaica wearing bantu knots or china bumps and she was also wearing um carnival feathers uh, masquerade feathers and there was you know there was a lot of blowback there was a lot of cause of a cultural appropriation xyz from black americans um and then there was the um you know the the typical retort from white people saying well some saying it's just hair and two saying that um if white people can't wear typically black hairstyles why is it black women are allowed to wear blonde wigs um 
And like clockwork, out come the pictures of the Melanesian kids with blonde hair and blue eyes. And it's just very interesting to me because Melanesians, in terms of genetic relation between African-Americans and Melanesians, I would have much more in common with a black American than a Melanesian. Um, if we were to do a 23andMe, I'm willing to bet that like most African-Americans' makeup would be similar to mine rather than a Melanesian person. But they're willing to, you know, yield this idea of blackness to Melanesians for this argument of saying, well, black people can have blonde hair too. Um, even though in terms of genetic similarity, genetic relation, there is no genetic relation between black Americans and Melanesians. Um, and there is no, you know, checking of politics. There isn't this thing of where like, before we were like, before we're willing to share this blackness with you, we we need to make we need to you know double check your politics. Are you fighting for reparations in America? Are you fighting for um, Black Americans to be represented in films? Are you fighting for X Y Z X Y Z for Black Americans? There doesn't seem to be that same thing when it comes to this particular point, um, which is interesting because if if the point was, would you allow Melanesians to use the N word? I think then the argument would be it would be different. There would be that then you would see Melanesians fall into this foreign black category according to groups like ADOS. So it's very, very interesting the way that blackness is being chopped and screwed and people are making it this much more insular thing, um, kind of erasing the shared histories that many black groups have. You definitely see a demand for specificity. You definitely see this thing of where I need your blackness to be categorized. It needs to be, so I know that it's distinct, so I know whether or not it's distinct from mine. Um, you know, and I, you know, you see people using a lot more abstract terms when they're describing black people from other ethnic groups. So it's like, you're now calling, instead of a familial bond, you're kind of, you know, creating more of a separation. So it's like people, people will say things of like, people that share our phenotype, um, melanated people. So very, very abstract ways of describing non-black American individuals. Um, and it's just, it's, it's just really interesting to sort of see how these things are sort of shaping up. I'm unsure if it's things have always been this way and just not as publicized, but in this current moment, it's just, it seems very, very, um, yeah, it seems like things are becoming so much more insular um, and people are retreating into their identity in a way that isn't necessarily helpful for wider black liberation. Um, and like you can see the wider society sort of continually trying to push this idea of a cultural war through like moral panics about different groups at different times. So things like our oh, South Asian men are, you know, like sex trafficking, grooming, that kind of thing. Our oh, white working class boys are falling behind in school. Like they use cultural references to sort of stoke up these ideas and opinions of people. Um, and I guess to combat that, you kind of, we, I guess we kind of have to think about how far we're willing to let blackness stretch. Um, you know, I agree that blackness is political. Um, you know, being black, being a black person makes you a public figure in, in, in the diaspora. In a, in a majority white country, being black makes you a public figure. You stand out, your hair is politicized, your features are politicized, your existence is politicized, your behavior is politicized. But however, I, I guess where I sort of draw the line is that just because you have a particular politics doesn't make you black to me. So. You know, I would never consider a South Asian person black. I'd never consider a Jewish person black. Um, even though I know these people have been involved in black movements, both um, in the UK, in South Africa, 
uh, individuals from these backgrounds rather but um but yeah i guess that's where i kind of find myself stuck and you know you can look at moments and you can see the Gronwick strikes in the 70s or the movement against the commonwealth immigration act in 1962 and you can see that this you know these coming togethers these um these coalitions in these moments these politically black coalitions they were useful they 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 managed to secure their objective um but i think you know in the modern day maybe because um i think one of the things is there is a lot of distance between different communities i think people talk often about london being this multicultural society but i don't think we have well maybe because i live on the suburbs but i think in general there isn't that much integration i don't think we in 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 i don't think we um take part in each other's cultures enough um in a sense that isn't just like you know buying each other's foods or whatever it may be or products um to actually have a deep understanding of each other to label it multiculturalism I believe what we have is coexistence. We sort of live next to each other, on top of each other, but we don't necessarily know each other. And that kind of allows for, you know, different narratives to run. I think, you know, I constantly see black people using like South Asians or Jews as like an example of, you know, homogenous groups that don't take any BS from from non-people from that community. And it's like, I don't think that's really what happens. Um, there are lots of like, you know, an Ashkenazi Jew and a Hasidic Jew, you know, then it's not necessarily as united as, as you might believe them to be from the outside looking in. Um, with the South Asian community, there's so many different things with, you know, Hindu nationalism, um, the Bengali community versus the Pakistani community versus the Indian community. Um, and again, when we look at these groups, I think sometimes we look at like one specific type of them and think that, you know, the whole community is involved. Like, uh, you know we're i think people are very used to seeing um south asians um running corner shops um you know having restaurants uh, having businesses in general and that business ownership isn't a reflection of south asians um signing some sort of deal with the devil in terms of with the wider society or the idea that white people appreciate south asians more than they appreciate black people i think you know that's a fallacy and you know and you could probably ask a south asian person that was in um a victim of the 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 bashing back in the 70s or 80s and, and they would think the idea was ridiculous um i do think there is a slight difference in how people are perceived based on racial stereotypes that come from the colonial period based on how different spaces were colonized um so for example black people are seen as more of a physical threat um we're seen as lazy we're seen as not being industrious whereas you know people from the orient people from asia are seen as um you know uh, uh mystical um, you know, there's, there's there's a difference in the way they're seen um, that sort of lingers from those colonial times. Um, but in general, I don't think they like. And, and, of, and of course, during the colonial period, South Asians were taken to different places in the West Indies, in East Africa and used as, as like a buffer class um, as well. Um, but again, like the, the fact that a lot of you see a lot of like um, South Asians owning businesses. And again, that might be particularly Gujarati Indians because um when that particular when members of that community were expelled from uganda and came to britain as because they were british citizens at the time they were expelled by the Armin and came to british came to the uk they were given ten thousand pounds um uh credit to to do with to, to, to open a business essentially so that particular moment is what's created um the wealth in that community and again that's a particular sect of the community if you talk to the bengalis 
and you know there was a there was a survey not too long ago and it showed that you know bengali wealth and african wealth you know they're both at the bottom of the barrel in terms of ethnic minorities in the uk so this idea that black people sort of sort of propagate a lot where it's like oh south asians are doing this this and this not really not all of them so um i think and I think what it is is sometimes you'll maybe you look back at history or you look back at your personal experience and you'll see the anti-blackness coming from these communities or coming from individuals from these communities rather. And again, I think you know it's hard to show grace because I mean you know even like there are things that I've I found out that I was gobsmacked by you know like finding out that Native Americans owned Black African slaves in the U.S. That was craziness to me. I was like, but again, um, I think in general, because people are oppressed doesn't mean that they're gonna have you know, a politically forward mindset or a, a revolutionary mindset or a, a mindset based around liberation for all. I think it's, it's you know, it's, it's natural. It's only, it's only human. So, I, but I feel like there is this consensus that black people have sort of been mistreated by everybody. Um, but again, I feel like we sort of maybe need to give more grace and more nuance to how these things come about. Not to say that we, you know, just accept it and, you know, live kumbaya but i think there needs to be sort of like a more of a dissection of how these issues or um this treatment came about so like um i think a great example i saw once was there was this like this clip about um uh soldiers in the vietnam war and there's this group of black gis in the vietnam war and they're talking about how the 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 vietnamese locals treat them um and they're talking about how they're being policed in general but um, people making them cut their hair and you know and xyz um, and they're talking about how the, the locals are treating them and the locals have these very anti-black ideas towards them. But it's very interesting because the actual GIs themselves have enough grace to know that the locals have been taught this by the white GIs that have, you know, that were present at the time. So it was very it was very interesting to sort of listen and see that even though they, you know, they're, they're, they were being ostracized and treated a certain way because of the color of their skin there was enough presence of mind to know these people don't have perceptions of us or they wouldn't have these perceptions of us if it wasn't for the representatives of the oppressor and and again even in that situation it's very complex because if you look at vietnam war you this is you know you have american imperialism trying to enforce their will on on vietnam and using black soldiers especially because black soldiers were over overrepresented during that in that war you know african americans have been around 12 12 percent of the population uh for a while but they were like 30 percent of the of the soldiers in vietnam so you can so in the sense of black soldiers being used as, a, as, a, as tools of american imperialism how does that then factor into the you know this racial idea of anti-blackness um taking precedent so it's like you know the different oppressed people can be used against each other in terms of like literally being positioned to battle each other are being pitted against each other by a wider uh, system so so yeah i guess it's kind of tough to figure out how you maneuver and i think also there are other situations where it's just tough to take things it's tough not to take things personally sometimes because i even i as much as i try and be as uh, um objective as i can sometimes i just think like raw like is this really what you think of us um and again i know that's kind of problematic but you know, like I've described with what happened in um in my uh, uh at my sixth form, um, like with and even with the you know there was that Nike advert, the London advert, where you know we had you know had great sort of black representation, um, and then there was like this outcry from South Asians as to being under underrepresented or not being represented at all, and you know that's a valid thing, but then 
there was also this sort of feeling of, well, if this had been like an all-white advert, would the same protest sort of come out? Like, was it more about you didn't like seeing black people being represented or is it actually because you genuinely wanted to be represented? Um, You know, and I think there were probably examples of both of people just like sort of exhibiting anti-blackness and people actually just being like, no, we're a big part of the London community. We want to be represented and that's completely fair enough. Um, so yeah, it's it's just it's a very tough thing to navigate. I think people's emotions always get in the way, as 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 you know, it's it's only human for people to get irate about certain things. And then on top of that, you sort of see the wider society trying to push you all into a very very narrow space with things like BAME. Um, like very recently, there's been this push to change Black History Month to BAME History Month. Um, as far as I was concerned, Black History Month was never a politically Black History Month. It was Black History Month, and that was emphasised by the fact that we only ever really talked about african-american history it was you know civil rights and slavery and maybe mary c cole if you went to a school that was like trying to show you that oh black people exist in britain too um but then all of a sudden around 2016 there was this big push to send celebrate british asian figures within black british history month and you know there's already there's a south asian history month that's been adopted in america so rather than choose to adopt a South Asian History Month in the UK, which would be, you know, completely justified, they want to sort of squish us all into this one month. And it's like, black people then feel, you know, hard done by again, because like, first of all, you didn't want to teach us about us, you wanted to teach us about our cousins across the pond. And now you just want to kind of erase us even more. So, yeah, it's, it's this very sort of confusing and tough thing to sort of keep your head, keep your head on a level playing field without sort of like just losing your lid. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you touched on some of the main points, but especially that last point that you made. And, and that is how I see it as well um, when it comes to, you know, the effect, the, the, the importance of it and the and the danger. So when it first of all, we'll talk about the importance. Right. It's going to be it's extremely important, in fact, to highlight um, to highlight difference, especially in contexts where there are hierarchies in place. Um, you know, but we should be also dedicated to scientifically understanding what those hierarchies look like, where they are. Um, and so, for example, the study that you talked about where it shows um, Bangladeshis and Africans have less um, money. You know, a lot of the conversations today on uh, just alone, the conversations today on um, on black and, and hierarchies um, don't have an answer to that. Right. That underneath African wealth, which is already one of the, lo- one of the lowest of the barrel here in, in Britain, there's even Bangladeshi, but within the discourses that we have, um, uh, they would be considered in the sort of anti-Black coalition, right? Um, and that, that, that's, that's where these kinds of things complicate, complicate our understandings of, of how race operates in, in, in a certain kind of place. And I think, you know, one of the things is, is that what I'm not advocating for, and this needs to be this needs to be insisted upon, is a kind of political blackness that's uh, all lives matter among people who are not white. You know, um, there, there's the you know in the sense of like the failure to recognize uh, the different uh, forms of oppression that different you know people uh, face. So, for example, in Sudan, there was two ways. It's the same as what Martin Luther King. The way in which Martin Luther King gets appropriated, right, among white people. There's two ways in which John Gering, the leader of the Southern struggle, who was respected by people from the North and the South, is used. The first is to shut down a conversation on difference, right? 
to shut down on the conversation on the ways in which people from South Sudan are systematically uh, deprived of the wealth of the country, of power, positions of power, um, even development, uh, economic development, and to say kind of like, we're all Sudanese, right? And uh, that completely destroys what, um, what John Gering was actually trying to do. But then there was another way in which you say, uh, we're different. And we, we, we suffer in this system in different ways. But let us organize along this so that we don't lose sight of the common problem, you know? And that is the kind of difference between uh, an appeal to universalism that tries to wish away difference and the kind of insistence on difference, but unity in struggle. And unity in struggle is the most important part because we do not have... First of all, the nature of a coalition is that it is politically necessary. It's not, I don't have to like someone and they don't have to like me for me to be in a coalition with them. And in fact, any form of serious politics requires that people who may not like each other, if they're at some point are going to enter into a coalition together, because that's the nature of the beast. You know, one of the things about Gandhi is that Gandhi's, Anti-blackness, right? Something that I find very, very interesting. Anti-black racism. His anti-black racism. Gandhi's anti-black racism was particularly because he tried to distinguish the Indian community from the African community so that he could find in South Africa uh, some benefits for Indian people against the blackness of the native, right? Um, we're not like them. We're more like you is basically the understanding of that kind of politics. Now, the power of of the kinds of political blackness that emerged in South Africa during the Biko period, when um, during the Black Consciousness Movement, when when the Pan-African Congress was banned and when the ANC was banned, was that it was trying to do the opposite, right? It was trying to see that any kind of community can either be a... And this is, this is the art of serious politics. It's the same reason why the ANC allowed, in, even though it's the African party, allowed Indians into it, right? Politics means, the art of politics means, is that we don't have to like each other. We may have problems with each other, but we have to forge some kind of common idea, some kind of common program um, so that we can actually win, right? And then, you know, the politics is messy. Things might turn around. I, like, the, the, the point is, is that a lot of people also do the same thing with Fred Hampton, for example. They'll turn Fred Hampton, especially sort of the class reductionist types, you know, in the United States specifically, um, you know, that Fred Hampton, you know, the reason why he was killed was solely because he was uniting people. Not just that, you know. The point of Fred Hampton, the point that Fred Hampton was doing, is not just that he was solely uniting people. Um, it's that he understood that unity, you, you know, all of these categories... They can only happen um, in struggle, right? A, a kind of unity can only happen in struggle. So it's not, it's not that you have to make the decision before you enter into a coalition with someone and then assess whether or not a coalition is going to be fruitful. It's that you have to go through the messy task of doing it in, right? Because the liability of differences that if you don't solve that problem, your enemy will, right? And the enemy is almost always going to be the elites who don't have to suffer the consequences. 
And one of the things that worries me about these American ways of understandings of blackness is that in a world where we, where, where in fact, we need to get more people, especially if you have a pan-Africanist politics, you need to get more people to understand themselves as black, as in the case I gave in Sudan, but also in the case of, un, in the cases of places like, or uh, Ethiopia, Eritrea, you know, in Kenya, where, where, where people are really heavily divided along lines that could be tribal. And we've seen the consequence of where that could go, right? We don't need, we, we can just talk about the number of genocides, the number of ethnic conflicts that we've had in Africa. And what we know what the antidote to that would be is for an understanding, a common understanding of I'm not, I'm not a Jali in the case of using the tribe that I'm from in Sudan. And she's not a Falata, you know, in the case of someone else who's seen lower hierarchy of the tribal order in Sudan. You know, we're both African, but I am proud of some of certain benefits. Uh, not the benefits, sorry, like some of the certain like cultural uh, particularities of my history, some of the folk tales and etc. And there has to be a way in which we can incorporate that love for the specificity, a recognition of the difference of experience of specificity, but an understanding of that blackness. And in the United States, right, when you see the defragmentation of blackness, the opposite of what's actually needed and necessary during this moment, right, what you're actually seeing is, again, I think you touched on it when it comes to the question of capitalism, right? When my tribe and another tribe enters into a conflict in Sudan, for example, or in Kenya every time, why is it always around election times, first of all, is a big question that we have to ask ourselves, right? Um, and, you know, why is it always the elites are left untouched? You know, this is where the question of political blackness comes in. It's not necessarily about who's black and who's not, right? I think it's more about the question of of finding unity in struggle because whereas our specificities and particularities are really important to highlight, and especially when we're trying to diagnose what the problem is of society, they can also be a really big liability. And, you know, nothing proves this more than in, for me, like the country that really, really shows how this, this is, this is a problem is in Guyana, you know, I mean, in Guyana, you had the anti-colonial struggle was organized under one Marxist party called the PPP. One wing of that Marxist party was Burnham, and the other wing of that party was Jagan, an Indian and an African. Come election time uh, for a plebiscite on, uh, you know, on independence, and this party basically wins the whole country. They win the whole country. That terrifies the British people, right? A whole mar a one Marxist party that's it's got its frictions in it, but they've somehow found unity in struggle, right? Is becoming a threat to the colonial order that they build, and so they actually literally they intervene. Britain intervenes and invades, and what you end up seeing after that, especially within the context of a Cold War that's emerging, is that the PPP divides into the PPP becomes an Indian party, a Marxist party, and the PNC, also a left-wing party and a socialist party, becomes the African party, right? And what ends up happening after that is the elites, it becomes a fight of the elites, you know, the African elites and the Indian elites over who gets to take over the colonial machinery, 
who gets to become the new capitalist class, who gets to become this. And in the meantime, race riots happen very, very soon after. And politics becomes fragmented and fragmented to that point, right? When, when, when you have that situation going on, you know, there's a specificity to being an African and to being an Indian. But the reason why people like Walter Rodney and the, world, the WPA came in and, and developed their own concept of black power as uniting Indians and Africans, and the reason why they were able to have an Indian party, uh, the IRPA, and an African party, the ASCRIA, ASCRIA, which was a member of the African party I'm saying and broke away from, right? And the reason why they all came together under one banner, the WPA, and then tried to redefine blackness was because they understood now that the politics of identity was really a politics of elites fighting against each other, but masking themselves behind race, right? And this is where the danger of race comes from. Now, when you see it from that perspective, what you're seeing about things like ADOS, or when you're seeing these kinds of attempts, you know, what you're, you're seeing somewhat of the same process, right? Where it's much easier to unite under colonialism because you have one common colonial enemy, right? Once you're in the post-colonial period in Guyana, people are going to fragment along racial lines because that's what the capitalists and the elite want to do. They want to corner their own positions. And what better way to do that than to get people to understand themselves based on their ethnicity? That's, that's, the, that's the easy way in which you can deal with that kind of thing. And the antidote to that kind of thing in that circumstance is a kind of political blackness. But, it's, it, but maybe today it wouldn't be. But, you know, the problem is, is that because of the, the, the deformation of Guyana in that direction, not right now, just like last week, three days ago, four days ago, there were, you know, a few boys, a few black boys uh, who were killed uh, by Indians in a very brutal way for stealing coconuts on the wrong side of town. And now basically Guyana seems, it feels, and hopefully it's not, on the verge of new race riots, right? Because then at, in, in retribution, black people went and killed Indian people. The reason why people like Walter Rodney and the WPA and Andaye tried to resolve that through a kind of political blackness in the 60s was because, or in the 70s and, and going, moving all the way up to the 80, 1980, is because that was obviously a battle between elites and working people and poor people were the ones that were killing each other. Now, I know that that sounds like an extreme example, but the concept of ADOS and stuff is almost exactly the same. It's in a sense that there was once a time when the Black Panther Party, you know, you talk about Melanesians, for example, right? And this shows you just the deformed understanding. The Melanesian people may share the same phenotype as us, but genetically speaking, not only are they, are they, are, are they, they're probably more distant to African people of African descent than white people, you know, because they actually left way earlier. Um, and, and got to where they are way earlier, you know? So, like, the point is, is that we're talking about thousands and thousands of years of a difference between the migration of Africa, from the earliest migration of Africa. That's where the origins of Melanesian people, you know? Um, uh, but the point is, is that there was a... But they still identified themselves as Black, and they had a Black power movement in the 60s. And they had a Black Panther movement, you know? Um, just as Australia had a Black Panther movement. There was no insistence by the people in Oakland, California, calling this blackface or, or, or whatever, because I think they also had an understanding um, that the you know, the same as the Dalit people calling themselves black. They had an understanding in India. They had an understanding that this is, this is about political liberation, you know, um, and this is about what's politically useful. 
And this is about giving people a sense of pride and dignity and giving people, you know, the, the ammunition, not physical, of course, but like the ideological ammunition to be able to wage their struggles. And that's that's the whole important thing about about this breakdown. When you're seeing the breakdown, similar to the ways in which Guyana, the elite in Guyana, wanted to corner the positions uh, that was left behind by the colonizers and to become the new business class, as Franz Fanon warns us in the pitfalls of national consciousness in his chapter in Wretched of the Earth, right? There's a similar kind of dynamic going on. You see all of these debates of race. They almost always come down to this very similar common denominator. And that's always that black people should have that thing. So when it's, you know, I'm not, by the way, I find it abhorrent and disgusting that Jessica Klug situation or whatever, um, you know, but the, the debate all turned against, okay, we should have rightful suspicion towards light-skinned people, right? Instead of a question of why did she need to perform her blackness? Is there maybe a form of social capital that she found that she benefited from? But then the second thing that always comes up is black person should have had that, not her, right? It's always that. That's always the, the, the preoccupation. And ADOS is the same kind of preoccupation. It's the um, affirmative action. A black person should have that for African descendant of slavery. Why is a Ghanaian or a Nigerian taking that? We fought the civil rights struggle. That was for us. Reparations. An African-American should have that. Why should a Ghanaian come and benefit from that? It's the same thing of, first of all, there's a certain kind of implicit, doesn't have to be explicit, but there's an implicit understanding there that the American dream is a real thing, you know? But the problem is, is the obstacle to that American dream is the Ghanaian and the Jamaican next door, right? There's that first, right? And then the second of all is also this competition for the spoils, right? And that's, that's, again, the danger sometimes of, of specificity. So on the one side, the danger of universalism, that uh, kind of political blackness that's not smart, yeah, that's not responding to a specifically particular political and economic situation, right? And that's just about easing out differences is that you can't get rid of those differences. In every single organization, in every single coalition, there's going to be these problems. There's going to be serious problems, you know. Um, you know, one of the things that Steve Biko said had to deal with when he was built the South African Students Organization um, was that there were some Africans who were saying that it's not like curry, you know, to Steve Biko, basically saying there's too many Indians here, you know, um, and vice versa. There was there was some of these the same problems going on. The other. So those kinds of tensions will always exist. But the art of politics is not always about engaging in coalitions and alliances with who you like. Right. And the art of politics always, and then there's also the other things that we also have to understand when any conversation on political blackness or the political nature of any racial kind of politics is that it is a powerful tool for any emancipatory cause. But race and, and division and difference in the first place is also a potential huge liability and can often be co-opted by elites. And that's what we see, I think, in many different countries. And so for me, the word black or person of color or whatever placeholder we have is, you know, I mean, the thing is, is this that I can understand why people would not see the validity of political blackness today. The reason why is because I'm not saying it, it's it's time is done, you know, its usefulness is done. People understand the concepts of black differently, etc. Right. But first of all, we should not close the possibility that its time may not be done. 
in the future when it might be useful. If, for example, in Guyana right now, but even then maybe per people of color, maybe they need to come up with something to resolve their crisis, right? But second of all, I do not, I, what worries me about the dismissal is not that it's not right to dismiss this stuff today or to feel this aversion that we that many of us have towards uh, Black History Month that has Zayn Malik and 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 anyways it's going to be you know I'm just as uncomfortable with a Zayn Malik there as I am maybe uncomfortable if there was a Candace Owens on the on the on the Black History Month thing as well right um, so there's also something there about the political nature of who 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 defines our history. Why is it that you'll never see a Siv Anandan and a Claudia Jones, for example? Um, you know, th- th- those are some things that, 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 you know, unless there's like a political thing. But like more broadly, it's that it's just that it's that I just don't like the, the dismissal and geneticist things. And just this preoccupation with blonde Melanesians is, is kind of gives us a hint of, of what's really going on. Right. We, we've bought into this idea that black really is about color. Right. Because as you know, Historically speaking, you know, you've already highlighted it, right? The, the, the paradox of that situation, right? Uh, you might as well call someone white, uh, Afri- uh, uh, person, a uh, black person, if you're going to call a Melanesian black, if you were looking at it from a purely historical and genetic perspective. But the reality is, is that um, I think people have fallen into a kind of, you know, typical understanding. And whenever that usually happens, it's usually because there's a lack of, or there's a waning, the black radical tradition is waning. So we're in a situation or a period where the black working class are doing amazing, incredible things uh, and multiracial people as well. And people across the uh, many countries, but of course like black working class in places like Ferguson, in places like Missouri, in places like Baltimore are doing incredible organizing with an incredible level of militancy. But it does seem to me that even among people, you know, who call themselves part of the black radical tradition today among the intelligentsia, the black intelligentsia have given up that kind of commitment to actual politics. And there is a kind of concern about middle class things, you know, uh, universities, you know, um, like these kinds of, you know, like the boardrooms of, of, of corporations and 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 so of course the politics is going to become more phenotypical. It's going to become more exclusionary because it's become because you know once you give into the idea of the capitalist system, well then then you've given into the idea of competition, right? Because that's the that's pretty much one of the one of the driving forces of of, of capital is is beyond just um, beyond just you know accumulate accumulation. There's also competition, and and of course if you give into it, then you're going to compete against other people. So I think that that's sort of the crisis. And I just want, I, I, what I'm saying is, is that I doubt that that kind of political blackness that was popular um, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s is going to come back. And, you know, Stuart Hall even brings this up in the 90s. You know, he, he's already seen its, its end. But Stuart Hall always used to say Sivanandan as an Indian. He used to call him, he used to say he was proud that Sivanandan was a black intellectual. And more importantly, Stuart Hall also in his own memoirs also used to say that he didn't consider himself black until he came to England, because within the racial hierarchies of of, of Jamaica, um, you know, Stuart Hall was basically seen as, uh, you know, he was seen as the the uh, upper caste people, 
And he even says in his memoirs that his mom used to tell him not to bring in like blacker people than him. And he say that his family members, because he was the darkest of his family, they used to make fun of him in a joking kind of way, but still didn't see him as black, you know? So these are the kinds of real complexities that once we pick up our magnifying glass and we go into places like Jamaica or Haiti and we see the internal racial hierarchies or places like Sudan, we realize that even blackness among people who would be considered black in the US in, in, in many of these countries is not automatic. You know, it's, it needs to be something that you gain a consciousness of. And insofar as something that you need to gain a consciousness of, and it requires you to imagine and understand yourself in ways different than what's intuitive, right? It's political. So the question is, is there's always a political blackness. What's the nature of the, the political, what's the political nature of blackness today? And um, why is its nature that? Those are the questions I think people should be asking instead of, you know, a casual dismissal of generations past. That was a long rant, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think now is like a really important time when it comes to how we think about how we, how we organize ourselves going forward. What benefits us? What doesn't benefit us? I think people have, I think several things have happened. I think the struggle itself took on maybe like a commercial sort of nature. When I say commercial, what I mean is it became this thing that you can sell as a story. Like, if we look at the ways in which um so when it, whenever a policeman kills a black american the way that story is relayed um and shown and directed to the rest of the world that's seen as the epitome of the struggle the epitome of what we're trying to be liberated from is not being killed at the hands of the state but that's only one form of it you know um police violence police brutality is one form but there's also medical racism attainment gaps hostile environments down to immigration like there's so many different ways in which the state will push against black people's um human rights essentially um but i think what what happens what's happened sort of with you know with american he uh, he hegemony um like the there's a very a very specific binary idea of what things need to look like and therefore the, then the remedy becomes less nuanced because the 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 problem is is being made to seem as if it's one dimensional and this is this is by the wider society this is this isn't by black americans this is the wider society is making the problem seem one dimensional and i guess that plus the very aspirational imagery that we get in a lot of you know black um art forms whether it's um, music videos or films or just this idea of richness uh, of, of of having resources like obviously people are going to gravitate towards that and i think as the as the bourgeoisie class as the middle class grows bigger and bigger it then becomes this thing of where you're less inclined to want to disrupt the system because the attainment of the the top level powers of the system seem as if they're closer to you they're not actually but they seem as if they're closer so then it becomes a very 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 different thing you know and then you, you look at like you people look at having a black man as the president as a, a win for the entire black community when that's not necessarily the case um 
having you know black judges black policemen like it's it, it then becomes you know how effective is having black faces in the system in terms of wide liberation you know how effective is essentially sticking black faces on capitalism you know you, you we have the likes of Beyonce and Jay-Z and while they might be doing philanthropic things how effective is it in a wider sense uh, I don't I don't mention them to 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 draw them out in particular I'm giving them as an example because they're probably the most the, the most popular example of um affluent black people uh currently and you know and, and even when we look at the ways people like will talk about past political groups like the panthers people talk about the panthers and how you know the you know the the cia was onto them as to things like that but the, one of the main reasons the cia was onto them is was, was because of the politics they were teaching it wasn't just because yeah they were feeding black kids and and um you know helping the black community they were arming the community with political political knowledge and you know people like fred hampton i think you know people like fred hampton kwame tor um you know uh huey newton uh angela davis um like all these people i think they kind of represent the politic the best of us in our in terms of a political mindset a politics that's about solidarity about um uh, coalitions in different forms you know that, that includes thinking about palestine as a settler colony like there's so many different aspects to what liberation looks like and i feel like because it's only emphasized in one fashion particularly in the the american police brutality um story and the way that's sold to to all of us it kind of robs us robs us of an ability to see the wider picture sometimes like it's probably a bit ignorant of me to say but you know i i used to think that the the be all end all answer was just to you know repatriate the african continent that was literally like i thought yeah that will solve everything but you know that would then probably just create a set of hierarchies that become problematic in and of themselves um and i guess you can kind of see that with liberia as an example um i hope i'm not sounding too pessimistic um i do actually have a lot of faith in terms of where black communities can um go to in the future but um but yeah i, I just i don't know i feel like with the idea of coalitions and allyships and these kind of things it is we're in a space that is quite difficult to maneuver at the moment yeah no i, I think you're right i mean it's just that that's the whole point is 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 the the fallacy of 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 believing that a person's skin color or identity is going to naturally lead to a political position of commonality with that person you know i mean that's something that you have to build and sometimes it's also something that you have to dismantle right depending the point is is that I think the question isn't that we need new terms or new ideas. The question is, is what we need to return to is a sensitivity to the moment that we're in, right? There is no one-size-fits-all question on who gets to be Black and who's not. There is no one-size-fits-all question on how we define ourselves and how we're not, you know? Um, it's always going to have to respond to the political moment that we're in. And it's only when we're able to do that, to have that kind of flexibility. That we're all able to, we're we're going to be able to say, okay, um, maybe we, we, you know. So for me, basically, what that what that basically means, to put it in the simplest way, is there have to be sensitive to the material realities in front of us. You know, the material realities, and we build our ideas from there. We don't start with ideas and then try to, uh, you know, superimpose the real world into them because that's not going to work. It's really going to be really difficult for me to go around and and. Um, spread the gospel of a new word that I've developed to try to get people to understand specificity, but also unite in difference and, 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 and create unity um, 
by just throwing away, throwing books at them because they'll take those books or pamphlets and throw them in the bin unless those ideas make sense, right? It did not make sense for an Indian in South Africa to understand themselves as black during the time when Gandhi was there. It didn't, you know? Uh, the realities, the material realities that were there stopped that from happening. But it did make sense, um, you know, within the context of the universities in in, in Cape Town in the in the 60s and you know, the 70s. It made sense then. And so, like, that's the point. The point is, is that um, nothing is set in stone. No category is set in stone. And the politics of coalition, you know, it's just that we have to be, there has to be a seriousness of politics. But for there to be seriousness of politics, there has to be a, a common enemy, right? I'm not saying that we should invent one. I'm saying, I think the enemy is, if we look back at the radical tradition before, which you're so right, the more racism becomes covert, the more difficult it is to get people to understand the urgency or to stop people from buying in because it's easier to convince someone in the South when they're being segregated and they can't eat food when they're being like, you know, killed or, or threatened for, for voting, you know, it's easier to, for them to see, okay, this thing needs to be changed. Right. And from there, the obstacle is to move them from a position of hopelessness to a position of hope. But it's much harder when it's more covert racism, like the one that we're facing today, right? Because it's hard to convince people that that their suffering is not just because their community is not united or they're, we're not like Jews, you know, or we're not like uh, Indians or, you know, what, what people like to say um, as like, if we were like them, we, we would be better. Because that's usually like, again, goes back to this thing of uh, the celebrities being like, our, you know, living through their their desires and 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 us thinking that the more celebrities we're gonna have, the better it's gonna be for us, right? It's not like that. Like you have to get back to really understanding, like that that we're in a crisis, like you said, you know. And so that basically means is that level of seriousness of politics. It never starts with the terms or even the coalition. The coalition is not what starts. It always starts. It always starts with the issues. The issues that people actually care about, the, the issues that people actually care about are not um, our identities or, or our uh, ideas of who's black and who's not or what what's purple person of color or or any of this ontological discussion stuff that's so common in academia. The things that people care about are food, shelter, bread, clothing. You know, the things that 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 are necessary for, for, for the reproduction of human life. And it's usually on those issues where you can actually get people to unite. So the only kind of unity that's actually possible in politics of a coalition or an alliance is a unity based on the issues. And it has to be a common struggle. And that's where the WPA actually came in. It didn't come in by going around to Indian communities and saying you have a common fate. Uh, with black people insofar as we live under a neo-colonial system. And it didn't go to black people and tell them that. But what it did do is it went to people, black person, an Indian person who is in a factory, or maybe not a factory, could be in their neighborhood, who doesn't have access to sewage water, um, and then telling them we need to organize together to get some proper filtered water. And once that happens, well, once the campaign is over, the Indian person and the black person could end up hating each other again, or but there's a chance also that they won't. You know, and that's exactly the same thing that happened with the the coalition against fascism and the Fred Hampton and Black Panther Party. Again, it wasn't about going to white communities and telling them you should drop your Confederate flag and stop being racist. 
In fact, actually, when the Young Patriots joined the Chicago Coalition Against Fascism that the Black Panther Party set up, the Rainbow Coalition, their flag was the Confederate flag. But they weren't going to sit down and, 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 and bog that, get bogged down over the symbolism of that. What they were going to say was, okay, you can have these kinds of really strange beliefs, uh, anti-me beliefs, but I don't have to, you don't have to love me for me to be in the coalition with you, and I don't have to love you. But throughout the process of fighting against police brutality, they did continue to have lifelong friendship with each other, the people that were in the, co the coalition. And so Bob Lee, the guy who Fred Hampton sends to uptown Chicago, where the white working class who had migrated from the South and moved up North um, with their pride and Southern pride and Confederate pride and whatever. I mean, uh, when he died, the people that showed up to his funeral were the same young patriots. And, that, and he died as a congressman just like a few years ago, you know? So that's the point. The point is, is, we can't go around and tell people that your often righteous frustration with another community, right? Um, because of whatever reasons, right? Uh, you need to you need to put that aside and stop being angry. That that's not how politics works. What it, what it, what it, what it, what, it, what is required is politics of like a coalition or an alliance where you say, look, you are suffering from this and you're suffering from this and we're both suffering from this. What could we do together to stop ourselves from, uh, from being in this situation? Um, and let's figure out our differences in the process of us struggling together. And once that happens, um, that's when the elites who are used to or who need people to be uh, their constituency, you know, whether that's a politician or, or a business person or whatever, um, that's when they're going to get terrified. You know, and that's exactly what terrified the Guyanese uh, ruling elite, which had been divided between the Indians and, and blacks. And that's what basically uh, led to um, the car bombing that killed uh, Walter Rodney. It's what led to um, to the killing of Steve Biko. And it's what led to the killing of Fred Hampton. And, and the reason is, is it's not because they united people. It's not that simple. It's the fact that they got people to really understand. They got they got they were able to 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 get past those barriers, um, and get people to to really intervene in those things which are necessary for the reproduction of human life. Things like shelter, work, clothing, etc. Because that also means that they're hitting at the rep reproduction of the economy. And when you hit the reproduction of the economy, you're hitting at the reproduction of the very existence of a ruling class. And so that's the kind of politics that we have to be attentive to. Um, and so, you know, we should get, get inspiration from uh, the past, but we also have to recognize that while everyone's sitting down and debating about, you know, Adele's hair, um, there are real issues that people are dealing with. And there's a vacuum that's not being, that's being filled, that's, that's, that's empty, you know? And the first person, the first group, you know, whichever group that's going to be, to get to that vacuum is going to be, the next Angela Davis. It's going to be, because Angela Davis is still alive, but she's different now, you know? But like, it's, it is going to be the next, uh, the next Fred Hampton. And, um, you know, I've seen that kind of stuff happen in Sudan where, uh, you know, especially it always happens in during moments of revolt. You know, it happens in Turkey as well when the Gezi Park protests happen. Turks, saw Kurds as one for a brief moment and then that fell apart and they started hating each other again. 
Um, in Sudan during the revolution, we had the same dynamic where people from Darfur and people from the north started seeing themselves as one. And now we're already starting to see that breakdown. And so, you know, it's it's fragile. Unity is fragile. But but it, it's it, the point of politics is not about uh, about people liking each other. It's about getting things done. And it's about uh, about fighting against the conditions, uh, the material conditions that affect us all. You know? and, and, and that's the art of politics for me personally. Okay, okay. I think here is a relatively natural point to stop. I want to thank everyone for listening in. Um, I want to thank you, Mohammed, especially for coming on. I think this conversation was really, really good. And yeah, I just want to thank you. So from me, myself, Ni, I'll be signing out. Once again, thank you to my guest, Mohammed. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Is there anything that you want to plug? Anything you're doing that you want people to know about or see? No, not not for now. But uh, soon there will be. Um, and check out my Twitter um, to find out more about it. But there, but not yet. Do you want to plug your Twitter then, so people can find you? Yeah, it's uh, M underscore El Naim E L N A I E M. Great. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.